Sail on. Bill Nye and others celebrate LightSail 2's third anniversary in space. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Is LightSail 2 over your head right now? It's possible, so long as you're not too far north or south. No one thought the Planetary Society's little CubeSat with the shimmering sail would still be around over a thousand days after it rode into orbit on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy booster. And yet, there it is, still sending back gorgeous images of our world and teaching us how to sail around a planet on the light of the sun. We'll celebrate with Society CEO Bill Nye, Chief Operating Officer Jennifer Vaughn, and LightSail Program Manager Bruce Betts. Of course, Bruce will also return for What's Up with a prize that is near and dear. We'll also hear from Digital Community Manager Sarah Al-Ahmed. Sarah is just back from the meeting of the American Astronomical Society. And Editorial Director Ray Poletta will give us a preview of the June solstice issue of the Planetary Report, the Society's magazine that you can read for free at planetary.org. There's much more for you on our website, including Jatan Mehta's brand new article about how planets get rings. And Bruce has an update on our Shoemaker Near-Earth Object Grant winners, while Casey Dreyer showcases the letter we've written to the U.S. Congress in partnership with our friends at the National Space Society. It makes our case for full funding of NASA's Near-Earth Object, or NEO, surveyor mission the infrared space telescope that will be able to discover and characterize many more of those space rocks that cross our path. The June 17 edition of the Downlink, our weekly newsletter, features a captivating image of an alien object on the surface of Mars. Alien, if you're a Martian, that is. The artifact from Earth is thought to be a good-sized piece of the Perseverance rover's thermal shield that landed a couple of kilometers from the rover. The rock it rests on is also pretty spectacular. The 240th meeting of the AAS happened in Pasadena last week. As I said, Planetary Society Digital Community Manager Sarah Alamed was there. Sarah has a degree in astrophysics from UC Berkeley and a passion for space science and exploration. So you might say that for her, AAS was the heavens on Earth. Sarah, it sounds like you had a great time at this uh, recent meeting of the AAS, the American Astronomical Society. I really did. You know, I've been looking forward to trying to go to the AAS for years, maybe 10 years now. I've been watching all their press conferences online, but being there in person, there's so much that doesn't get broadcast online, and it was a, a wonderful time. I have not been to one of these major science conferences in a while, but as I remember, it's just bewildering. There's such an assortment of presentations and you, you, no one, no one could even hope to go to what, a fifth of them? There must have been some highlights, right? Let's talk about some of those. As you said, there were so many things going on. I, I tried to focus mostly on exoplanet research, but I was rolling with a whole group of astronomy friends, so we, we saw a lot of things. It, we started out on the first day with the opening plenary talk, which really started out with a bang. It was Jane Greaves from Cardiff University talking about the phosphine in the atmosphere of Venus, which was you know a great way to start out. 
they went through all of the original data, showed the the response to it and how, how people were kind of questioning and kind of going back and forth on it. And it looks like they, they've continued to take data, kind of narrow their error bars on, on what's going on there. And it looks like the case for phosphine on Venus is, is still there. But huh. they're, they're definitely looking forward to new missions that are going to Venus to try to clear it up a little bit. I think NASA's Veritas and Da Vinci missions are definitely going to help out. Also Envision from ESA, that's going to be uh, really cool to see what happens when all these missions get together and really try to hone in on what's going on in the atmosphere of Venus. All right, exciting stuff ahead. And it's great to hear that Jane and her team are hanging in there with these uh, results, trying to refine them. I mean, she has been a great guest on our show, and maybe we'll link to her uh, previous appearances on uh, Planetary Radio. Let's move on to the way planets get formed, which is in these protoplanetary disks. You heard a, a pretty exciting, uh, pretty dynamic report about just how crazy some of those disks get. This one actually surprised me. It was probably one of my favorite talks of the entire conference. Konstantin Gerbig from Yale University came in with some amazing data that showed that they have evidence that in protoplanetary disks, you actually get these kind of hurricane-like vortices that can form in the disk right around uh, the area where water ice and water vapor kind of meet in the disk. You get these almost Earth-like hurricanes. And then when they form these small little planetesimals, they dissipate almost like a, a hurricane hitting the shore on Earth. Huh. I, I would love to know more about this and, and how it plays into the forming of icy bodies, but also what happens when that hurricane dissipates? Where does, where does all of that swirling ice go? That, that's really exciting. That really is. That sounds like a nice uh, future topic for planetary radio as well. So that's protoplanetary disks, the way worlds get their start, the way they're born. Uh, one of the ways they die, maybe the primary way, uh, the ones that are too close to their star die, is when uh, their star basically gobbles them up. You you heard a session about planetary engulfment? I did. This is cool because we know that our sun at some point is going to hit that that giant phase and it's going to eat the inner solar system. So they're they're looking at other star systems where this has happened. Uh, I heard a talk by someone named uh, Ricardo Yarza from the University of California at Santa Cruz. Their modeling shows that when a star engulfs a planet, particularly like a, a, a Jupiter-sized planet or something of that uh, scale, it actually increases the luminosity of the star for, for hundreds or even up to a thousand years. So if we were able to look at enough stars, we might be able to actually tell whether or not a star is eating its inner planets. And that's just really exciting, not, not just for you know our solar system, but just, I don't know, it, it really captures the imagination at the ends of worlds. It's devastating, but really cool. So that glow you feel after a really good meal, it extends to <laughs> our stellar uh, companions as well. That main topic, the, the thing that you said you were most uh, interested in attending AAS about, uh, did you hear a lot about uh, exoplanets? Oh, yeah. And it was actually quite surprising because in, in previous years, it's mostly cosmology, stellar dust, galaxies. Now uh, we're getting more and more information about exoplanets. And as everyone's looking forward to what the, the James Webb Space Telescope can do for our observations of, of, of planetary atmospheres, 
everybody was was in on exoplanets. So there there was a lot to pick from. And frankly, I didn't get to see all of it. It was it was really exciting and I'm looking forward to kind of going into the press conferences after the fact online and trying to watch all of the things that I didn't get to see. I would imagine a lot of these researchers, well, not just for exoplanets, but a lot of fields are really looking forward to getting their hands on the JWST. Oh, yeah. I I really do think that the next AAS is just going to be a rain of JWST results. The the first science images from the telescope are going to be coming out on July 12th, along with the first spectra. The entire community is is really excited about this. And, And I actually collected a lot of JWST swag while I was at the conference. I've got posters and pins and buttons and all kinds of cool stuff. So I'm going to package those up and I'm going to give them away on social media. So if any of the Planetary Radio listeners are are watching on our social media around July 12th, you might have a chance to actually win some of the swag I got at the conference. July 12th, it's no coincidence that that is the day we get those first science images from the JWST. So uh, check out all those social media channels, which uh, Sarah is the primary supporter of for the society. Just one more here as we look even further out with another telescope, that world-spanning telescope or radio telescope called the Event Horizon Telescope. They're moving on and moving up. Oh, yeah. I, I went to, it was actually a series of talks from the, the EHT team going over their newest results on uh, Sagittarius A-star, which is the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy. If anybody out there hasn't seen it yet, it is absolutely amazing. And I really recommend you look it up. But just to make sure that they can get even more data on our massive black hole and look at other ones, they're actually expanding the Event Horizon Telescope into this next generation telescope. So they're going to add more telescopes to it. And they're actually looking into uh, whether or not they can coordinate with space telescopes to get some data to help make it an even wider baseline and get even more resolution on these objects. Sarah, I envy you for getting to attend AAS this year. And uh, I sure hope that you get the chance to uh, go again next time, wherever it happens, and maybe to some of these other great conferences like the Division of uh, Planetary Sciences, part of AAS where you hear even more about planets, uh, those uh, small round things going around stars. Thanks very much for the great report. Thank you. That's Sarah Alamed. She is the Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. One of the first things the Infant Planetary Society created was the Planetary Report. Our terrific magazine is still going strong. The latest editors are my colleagues Danielle Gunn, our Chief Communications Officer, and Editorial Director Ray Paletta whom you hear on Planetary Radio from time to time, I asked her to give us a sneak peek. Ray, welcome back to the show, and I'm glad that you can talk with us about this brand new issue of the Planetary Report, the June solstice issue. Of course, the paper copy, the hard copy, goes to all of the members of the Planetary Society, but everybody can read it online at planetary.org. It has all the usual goodies, including a nice message up front from our boss. But the centerpiece is this gorgeous, long article, beautifully illustrated by uh, Jim Bell, our our former president uh, and the guy I call the Ansel Adams of Mars. Yeah, Jim's piece is really fantastic. If you haven't had the chance to read it yet, it's called Renaissance in Red, and it really nicely lays out the path to a sample return mission or set of missions to Mars. And I didn't even mention that, you know, sort of the theme of this is, I mean, we're celebrating the 25th anniversary 
of Pathfinder and Sojourner, the cute little robot that it carried uh, along with it, Jim talks about how much has happened in those 25 years since the success of uh, Sojourner. This blows my mind. Not that long ago, we were just figuring out how to fly planes. And now we're talking about, let's get a sample return mission or set of missions to Mars. The passage of time does not cease to blow my mind. This piece does a really nice job of showing how far we've come and what's left to go. Yeah, I was actually surprised, even though I've been around for all of these. In fact, I was that was my first Planet Fest in 1997. I was not yet working for the Society, but I was there to celebrate with everybody as uh, as the uh, spacecraft came down on the on the surface of Mars. And boy, I, if I wasn't hooked before, I sure was after that. <laughs> but, you know, he talks about nine orbiters, three landers, six rovers, and even a helicopter. Uh, since that time, and 13 of them still working on on the surface or above the surface of Mars. It's incredible. I mean, the Pathfinder mission really, I feel, paved the way for so many others to follow, including Perseverance and Ingenuity. Yeah. I mean, so well named. (laughs) In addition to this piece by Jim Bell and all the other goodies, there's this great upfront piece that you wrote about how the Planetary Society has brought so many of us along to Mars. Yeah, so I had the chance to talk to Lou about this, Lou Friedman, one of our co-founders, just about this journey, right, and how the Planetary Society played a pretty critical part of it. Um, It was interesting for me to get to dig through the history of everything, to learn how JPL and NASA and uh, the Planetary Society really collaborated to make this a special mission and to actually get Planetary Society members' names onto something that flew to Mars. That's pretty spectacular. And how. And we've done it so many times since. What I didn't know is that even Lou didn't realize that this little chip was actually there, that he kind of got a call from JPL or NASA saying, (laughs) hey, by the way, we brought your chip with all these names. Yeah, what a surprise. Can you imagine working so much and then you find out, hey, by the way, the names are there. (laughs) When I found that out, I was laughing so much. And I think it's just a terrific surprise, as Lou says perfectly in the article. It was also nice to see uh, the co-founder of the Planetary Society, the guy who hired me, by the way, quoted once again in the Planetary Report, the the magazine that uh, that he helped to start and that you are a big part of carrying on this uh, tradition today. Mm-hmm. It's an honor, really. It's it's just standing on the shoulder of so many other giants before me, right? And uh, it's just really cool to see this come to life, every issue that we put out. I'm super proud of it. And uh, this one, like we were saying, is so special because of that. It's almost like a time capsule in a way. I just think that's fantastic. Well, it's waiting for people at planetary.org if it has not arrived in your mail already. Uh, Ray, thanks for taking a couple of minutes to talk with us about this uh, this new edition of TPR, as we call it, the Planetary Report. Always a pleasure, Matt. Thank you so much. Yes, always a pleasure indeed. That's uh, Ray Paletta, uh, the editorial director at the Planetary Society, who uh, is responsible for the Planetary Report and a lot of the uh, other great stuff that uh, we put out, much of which you can find at planetary.org. I was on a Kennedy Space Center balcony on the morning of June 25, 2019. Thousands of us were bathed in the light of 27 rocket engines as the Falcon Heavy thundered upward. Bill Nye was standing next to me. We watched in awe and wonder and in great pride. 
As you'll hear from Bill, it wasn't long before we heard the signal confirming that LightSail 2 had been ejected or deployed from its carrier, the Prox-1 spacecraft. It was just four weeks later that the tiny CubeSat spread its silver wings. Now it's three years later. Bill, Bruce, and Jennifer join me online for a look back and a look ahead. Happy anniversary, uh, colleagues. Uh, this is a great time uh, for us to be celebrating. I'm happy to be able to do that with you and, and our audience. Uh, it is fantastic, Matt. So even as we uh, record this, LightSail 2 is on its third year in space, thanks largely to Dr. Betts and his people. <laughs> and Dr. Thank Betts? <laughs> well, I mean, he's the chief scientist, and this is pretty much a science mission. Yeah. I remember when Carl Sagan talked about solar sailing on The Tonight Show back in 1976. They had TV back then? <laughs> they had TV, uh, but it, when I watched it, and I'm not kidding, in a dormitory at Cornell University, there was it was not in color. I'm not even joking you. Uh, it's really quite a thing to get this thing to work. And Bruce, you and your team have figured out how to fly it so it stayed in space for, how do you reckon, an extra two years or more, three years when it's all done? Yeah, we didn't expect it to last this long, and part of that is the success of uh, the mission and our sailing ability. And part of it is uh, models that weren't really capable of dealing well with a big sail mixed with a small mass spacecraft. But yeah, we're, we're way past uh, both the orbital lifetime we expected and also things are still working. I mean, remember this is a, our biggest project, but it's a shoestring operation in terms of space flight. And we've had this very small core team that's been keeping it going. It's just amazing. All the all the major components, all the components of the spacecraft that, that we're working are still working. Well, I was going to say the pictures have been fantastic. Yes, they certainly have been. I only wish that we could show some <laughs> as part of this program. But of course, you can find those at planetary.org, specifically what? Uh, planetary.org slash light sale, right? Or sail.planetary.org. I often go in with sail.planetary.org because it takes me to the dashboard. I like to see the temperature up there. I like to know where we are on the Earth's surface. I love to look at that map. We're going to take the temperature of light sail. We're going to find out about the current status a little bit later in this conversation. But I want to take the three of you back. We have such a long and largely, not entirely, glorious history with uh, solar sailing. Um, Jennifer, you were there, right, for Cosmos One? I was. I was there. It was an exciting and highly disappointing moment in our, in our history. We gathered together to, to wait for those first uh, indications that our spacecraft has made it to orbit, and they never came. So there was the, the, the long pause of trying to figure out what no information, what does no information actually mean? And then there was the multi-day period of accepting reality that no information actually meant that we were not going to sail. I remember uh, people using the expression, wait, waiting for it to come over the hill, waiting for the spacecraft to come over the hill, meaning above the horizon, but it never did. It's somewhere in the Barents Sea, which is somewhere in the Arctic. You know, it was on a Soviet-era ballistic missile and uh, repurposed. And the 
nowadays that technology is connected to what's going on in the world right now. Uh, it's really a pause for thought. Well, we did recover from that experience and completely redesigned what we were up to. And that uh, resulted in, in LightSail, uh, a tidy little CubeSat. I don't know which of the three of you is best to talk about how we made that recovery from Cosmos One, uh, because there was such a, a, a huge amount, not just of money, but of, uh, God, emotional. And expertise, yes. And yeah, so we had these meetings with these very experienced aerospace guys, and we talked about the probability of if you tried again, would it work? And uh, it just became clear that our members would not go for another launch attempt on a Russian rocket. That became clear from uh, correspondence. How do you, uh, what do you do if you can't use this nominally ideal launch vehicle? If you can't use that, what do you do? Well, Dr. B, you ran around and got an Elena launch, right? Educational launch of nanosatellites. Yes, although uh, I didn't. It was part of the large team involved uh, early on. And then we've been doing light sail stuff since 2009, possibly 2008, depending on how you count it. But yes, uh, the first launch was secured through Alana, the uh, educational launch program through NASA. Jennifer, a lot must have gone into deciding to move forward with a completely new design, particularly after what happened with Cosmos One. Can you, you know, talk about what went into making, you know, committing our, ourselves to, uh, to this new project? To me, it's a very interesting story to see this evolution that took place between Cosmos One and LightSail. A lot of that happened because technology had changed. So going back in time during the era of Cosmos One, Looking at a small sat, a cube sat, wasn't even an option. You had to think about large spacecraft buses to be able to, to manage such a large sail in space. But during that era between when we lost Cosmos One and we fully launched a new program, uh, NASA had done a demonstration mission on a, what they called a drag sail. So this was an opportunity to open up a large sail to use the drag of the atmosphere to bring something down. And from that concept, we started some discussions about what might be possible in a small satellite. The reason why I find it interesting in that the kind of evolution side of how a project becomes something as large in scope as LightSail is it took us from developing a component of a larger mission that was run by the Russian space agency for light sail to thinking, well, with the technology changes and the team that we have available to us, maybe we can do the whole thing. So it went from the planetary society having a very large role on a mission to the planetary society having a mission. It was all helped and, and supported by this idea that technology had changed. Things had gotten smaller, they'd gotten less expensive, and we had accumulated a team of people around us who knew light sails, who knew what it would take to actually build out our own mission. So we did something we'd never done before, which was take on a planetary society mission. And the other thing is the standards had evolved. This business of the cube set, cubicle satellite, based on dimensions of 10 centimeters. 
10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 10, or in our case, three times 10, 10 by 10 by 30. As Jen is saying, that that these standards emerged allowed us to buy standard solar panels, standard, sort of standard circuit board. (laughs) And uh, then the idea of instead of using inflatable booms, and the boom would be the same usage as on a sailboat, inflatable spokes of a wheel, we use these so-called tape measure booms, which resemble your uh, home or contractor's steel tape measures. So they're spring-loaded. I mean, rather, they're springy. They have a flexibility. They can store energy mechanically when you compress them. Nanosail D that Jen's referring to was really turned out to be beneficial for us. And this is a part of the mission that I remember very well. So I I was now placed in charge th- through some vote at a board meeting, stuff happens. And uh, uh, Nanosail D had trouble. So it got on orbit and this the sail, this thing that was going to drag down through those just those few molecules that are up at that altitude was going to run into them. The sail didn't deploy uh, for my recollection is almost six weeks, five and a half weeks. And it finally sprung loose because of uh, thermal changes. You know, it got warm on one side, cold on the other, warm, cold, warm, cold. Eventually that shook it loose, expansion contraction. So we agreed that, man, we can't do that. We can't let the natural spring load of this of these wound up tape measure booms do the job. We had to have a motor. And when you add a motor, man, you add complexity, stuff to go wrong. And the motor literally is a Swiss movement. It's like a Swiss watch you've heard of. Well, it's a Swiss gear train. And the thing spins like crazy to uh, deploy the sails. Then it became clear that you can't just push them out. You had to push them out and then pull them back. You had to push them out and then pull them back a little bit and then push them out some more. And I just remember the guy, Chris Biddy, this young guy, oh, here's what we do. He's a mechanical engineer and he figured it out. That's my recollection. You know, this is uh, eyewitness hearsay. That was a, a real turning point. That and the meetings, you guys, like with Doug Stetson and those guys where we're, well, are we going to be able to pull this off? It costs this much. It's The, the risk assessment is uh, this high, this fraction, on and on and on. These beautiful graphs on these big this is before uh, PowerPointing, you guys. It was just on big sheets of paper, and uh, we decided we could do it. And so if you're a Planetary Society member, thank you. Both light sail missions, the whole thing, all in, has cost about $7 million U.S. Is that right, uh, Jen? $7 million. Yes, Estimates from guys like Doug, Doug Stetson and, other, and Bruce Betts, people who work in the industry, uh, uh, Scott Hubbard, say it's about a 20th of the cost of a mission if you did it at a space agency. So it'd be 140, 150 million if you tried these two space flights at a regular space agency. But thanks to you all out there and the good work of Dr. Betts and the team, we have had just a fantastic mission. And I hope it brings for many of our viewers, people, listeners who will eventually go online, it gives you that overview effect that all the astronauts talk about when you're in space and you look down at the earth, you see no political boundaries, you see the rivers, you see the influence of humans, you see all that ocean, 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 ocean. It changes the way you feel about our planetary home. Bill, Bruce, Jennifer, and I will be back in a minute with more light sail fun. Wait, 
Here's Bruce now. Will you help defend Earth? The Planetary Society is advancing the global endeavor to protect our world from an asteroid impact. It's the one large-scale natural disaster we can prevent, but we're not ready yet. Please, become a planetary defender and power our crucial work. You can double your support for planetary defense when you make a gift today. When you do, a generous member of the Society will match your gift up to a total of $15,000. It's a great opportunity to make a difference. Visit planetary.org slash defend Earth. Thanks. Bruce, about the giddiest I think I've ever seen you is when you have new images to share from Mike's <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I, uh, I do the program manager stuff, but I also have uh, evolved into the, the imaging team lead. It's a small team. Everyone handles it. I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My whole history goes back. I mean, I got involved in planetary exploration because as a kid, I thought the pictures were really cool. So now getting cool pictures. So yeah, I, I still get giddy. I just got giddy the other night with the, as a thumbnail came down, we send down the small thumbnail to figure out what to do. And I, I have these little pet areas that I want to capture and uh, am dependent upon clouds and orbits. And I finally got what I think is when we get the high res is a sweet, sweet picture of Madagascar. Why Madagascar? Because we can. (laughs) No, Madagascar turns out to be of great uh, evolutionary or climate importance. You know, it's this isolated island in the most um, the most abundance of abundant uh, life that part of the of Earth. And so, getting a picture, I will be. I got a great feeling about it, Doctor B. I'm looking forward. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it. Take us a little bit to get the high resolution down. So, why Madagascar? Because I'm trying to do as much as I can over the course of the mission to cover as much of the land that is, we, we only have an inclination of the orbit of 24 degrees, meaning we only go up to 24 degrees north latitude and down to 24 degrees south. That means we can get images somewhat farther north and we communicate with ground stations in the U.S., but it's still constrained. And some places, like it took me forever to get Indonesia without clouds. So it's really just... Oh, tell me about it. I think we've all been there, Dr. B. It's a personal quest. And so trying to get a picture of Indonesia without clouds. Oh, I think we've all done that. That is cool, man. That's just cool. Just as a sidelight, Bruce is also the guy that we can count on seeing at the office or any other society event with this uh, with a single lens reflex camera with a with a long lens on it so he's his interest in photography extends far below lower earth or medium earth orbit yeah cool uh, you know fourth biggest island in the world and silly pictures of tps staff shoving food in their face they all appeal to me and dogs are more dogs all right, Bruce, what is the current status beyond what we can see on that uh, terrific dashboard? We're coming down, and you can see that on the dashboard. Uh, so we always knew we weren't getting up high enough that our solar sailing would be able to overcome the force of drag where we think we're totally in space in this wonderful vacuum, but especially when you have a low-mass object with a big sail, it's like taking a piece of paper and putting it out in the wind. It's going to get uh, highly affected. So drag is bringing us down. We're still, as I say, amazingly, things are still working. Uh, we ha- we've had some communications issues, which seem to be mostly resolved, but we're having, we are having more trouble communicating and getting data down, but we're still able to do it. Bruce, what's a, what's a communication issue? There can be any number of them, and I think we've sampled nearly all of them during the course of the mission. 
this one is is exciting because it's unknown. Uh, we don't know why we're getting some good passes and some bad. So it could be the uh, the transmitter on the spacecraft. I mean, we're still hearing from it. It's just mostly it's having trouble receiving the uplink command to tell it to send stuff down. But for example, when you have a component on one of, we have two main ground stations, one at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, which runs under John Bellardo, runs the communication as well as software for the spacecraft. And then one at Purdue, both of them over a course of mission event parts break on the ground station. Mm. So then we're just stuck or we're limited to one ground station. We've had the computers go down and have major issues that coordinate the two ground stations. Then we lose all communication. Uh, and then we just have uncertainty because we not only have a challenge of communicating with a little tiny transmitter and a little tiny antenna on an object that's hundreds of hundreds of kilometers away, but also we've got this big radio reflective thing, this sail, which also complicates and limits how good the signal is depending on what orientation the spacecraft is at. And we are intentionally changing that orientation all the time and unintentionally having it change. So uh, I could go on and on, but I'm sure I've gone too far already. We can talk offline and I'll share more communication. (laughs) No, but I just, you guys, speaking of, I just remember I was in New York City and light sail one had been up in space and nothing was happening this was in 2014. And guys like Bruce and Dave Spencer. Spencer would say, oh, don't worry, there'll be a cosmic ray and it will strike the spacecraft and cause the computer to reboot. Oh, it'll be fine. Like, what? What the hell? <laughs> That's no way to run a space line or whatever it is. Sure enough, the thing rebooted. And then I guess I'll never forget this moment when the sail started to deploy. And I wrote on my paper notes, I'm trying to believe it, (laughs) that it was really deploying because the motor, we call revolutions, you call them counts, right? It was 185,000 revolutions of the motor to deploy the sail. Somehow in light sail two, since it had worked once, I believed it, but the first time after all those weeks of being in orbit and nothing happening and these guys reassuring me that all we had to do was wait for a random space ray if i may paraphrase dr betts i was skeptical but now i'm convinced we made a lot of changes based upon light cell one to light cell two to make it much more robust so we no longer depend on cosmic rays even when something goes wrong we have a a number of timers, both software and even hardware built in so that we would never get stuck in that situation. So we still have trouble with reboots happening, not happening, but uh, we learned from LightSail 1, as, as was intended. I remember that moment. This is LightSail 1, when a bunch of us were sitting in a hotel room in Florida, not long after the launch, and Bill, you were on a video link with us. There is a video of this, and we'll put a link to it on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio. You can see the moment that we got word that that little motor was spinning around as quickly as it was supposed to, to deploy that, that first CubeSat sail in orbit. Jennifer, it just makes me think of all the other wonderful moments that have come as part of this ongoing program. I don't know of anybody who was more enthusiastic, I'll use the word again, more giddy or more affected by this 
than you were, uh, maybe particularly at the launch of LightSail 2, which was just overwhelming. Yeah, there's a risk. I'm, I'm sharing too much here, but there's some video out there of me just bawling, not not crying a little bit, but, but fully bawling. <laughs> so, no, so you guys, if you've never seen a rocket launch, I know you're listening to this podcast because you're space enthusiasts, but really plan to get to Florida or Vandenberg Air Force Base or French Guiana and watch a launch. It really is spectacular. But the launch that brought my beloved Jen to tears or bawling was this night launch of the Falcon Heavy. And it was just spectacular, man. The ground lit up. Everything is your your clothes are vibrating. Your hair is vibrating. The, the balcony thing, the observation deck that NASA provides was vibrating. And oh, man. And then we realized it was really real, like this was going to happen. And then uh, there was a second part of this where this is from memory, Dr. B. Was it 54 satellites were deployed from that mission, from that launch? Several dozen. 24. 24, excuse me. We were in the parking lot of this the Kennedy Space Center visitor area thing, and it deployed. It like it. Whoa! Okay, we're in business. That really was after all the tooth pulling, you guys, and all the setbacks. It really was a cool thing, and uh, it's flying today thanks to you out there, you listeners, and it is informing space exploration worldwide. We are the Light Sail Two is accomplishing the mission of the Planetary Society to advance space science, to advance space exploration. The near-Earth asteroid uh, surveyor, or scout rather, mission will uh, use details of the technology that we developed, thanks to you all. So it's really, it's a heck of a thing on the third year anniversary. It's a wonderful feeling. Jennifer, I wanna hear more about what this has meant to us as a society the planetary society and the larger society, if you choose to, and where we go from here. It has shifted the culture of the planetary society uh, dramatically. It has shifted, I believe, expectations as well dramatically. And that's an interesting place to be. Uh, we, we pulled off something that we weren't even sure we could pull off. So we were stretching, I'd say, to our fullest extent taking this project on, but then bringing it through completion. So very, very challenging. And I, I, I think it's always important to, to note that there were many setbacks along the way. So this was not smooth sailing, pun intended. Uh, it, it, it took a lot uh, from the organization over a period of 20 years. So half of our existence, we have been in some way or another working on, on solar sailing. But the idea of getting a success, this is something that Bill always always talked about, pulling off a successful space mission that was completely supported by individuals, this was going to be a, a paradigm shift. Uh, and, and we hope it's a paradigm shift that goes beyond how the organization thinks about itself. But really, as you said, in a, in a broader context, that there's new opportunity out there to think through the resources you need to get something done in space and where those different sources of, of revenue to support your project might come from. Because this was truly 100% funded through 
through people, through individuals. And that's, that's never been done before. So I think everyone needs to remember to be really proud to be part of, of this, that even if you didn't contribute specifically to LightSail, just being a member of the organization helped give us the resources to move this project through completion and, and to have this kind of long-term success with it too. This was a wonderful surprise that we've gotten three years with it and not just one year. So where do we go from here? This is, this is the, the ongoing question. So we now, we know what we do well, and we do know that we can push those boundaries and do things that are hard, do things that are difficult and exciting for the public. But we also recognize you have to have all the right ingredients to do that. And that's, I'd say, where we are right now. We are, we've been building structures to gather the right ingredients so that we, we know and we see it, what that next big stretch is going to be. When you say structures, Jen, you're talking about organizational uh, arrangements. You're not talking about yeah. gantry towers and... Uh, no, 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 no. Thank you. Yes. No, organizational. <laughs> Build that into your budget plans. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm sure that'll get approved. Let's no, build a mobile launcher. So, so for instance, we have built our step grant program that Bruce can go into more detail about. Uh, the step grant program really builds on what we do best, which is we seed fund. We we provide small amounts of funding to get new ideas started. So, with that, you never know when you might find some new project that you are providing seed funding for, but actually could grow into something much larger. So we are keeping an eye out for those opportunities, but we've also been doing things just to strengthen our organization so that when the right ingredients come into play, we're ready. We're ready to go make a delicious new dish. (laughs) (laughs) I had to run that through. A delicious uh, new dish in space of <laughs> yumminess. Yes, exactly. You know, space exploration brings out the best in us people. We solve problems that have never been solved before, and so we're looking for the next problem to solve. I have never been prouder to be a part of the society, and I've been part of the society for a very long time, uh, not just because of light sale, but because of things like the Step Grant program that Bruce and I have talked about on the show, uh, where we will continue to not just innovate, but encourage innovation by others. And-, and the future, for those of you listening, the future of the organization is going to include the Planetary Academy, mm. where we're going to engage kids and families in the same way everybody you talk to who works in space today, with very few exceptions, Jen, everybody who works in space today got inspired when they were kids. Everybody who does anything, you ask your doctor when he want, or she wanted to be a physician. You ask anybody, and space exploration just is unique in this regard. And so the best is yet ahead for us at the Planetary Society, and LightSail 2 has done more than anybody expected of it. I think the best pictures are even yet ahead, aren't they, Dr. Bruce? Yes. Uh, the Madagascar pictures are going to be jaw-droppingly fantastic. No, for reals. I hope that works out. <laughs> you're, you're kind of committed now. <laughs> well, but he got the thumbnail. That usually bodes well. Oh, it usually bodes very well. Do you guys go without um, twisting? Uh, how often do you detumble? Is that still a good verb? Yes. Just to clarify, we twist twice every orbit 
intentionally trying to do 90 degree twists. So we're picking up the sunlight, pushing us on one side, going edge on towards the uh, sun. But one of the things we've had to deal with is, uh, and we've learned a lot, is the the momentum wheel, this fast spin, spinning little wheel at thousands of RPM that we use to make those 90 degree turns. Eventually it saturates. It ends up pegging it as fast as it can go in one direction. So then we have built in, we've found a two day cadence actually seems to work pretty well every two days, which would be uh, 28 orbits or so every 28 orbits or so we do a couple hour detumble where we stop doing any rotation of the spacecraft other than the spacecraft and its little computer brain and software try to use the Earth's magnetic field and the magneto torquers in their basically electromagnets to take this what spin is left in the spacecraft, take it out, and therefore take momentum out of the system so that you can then fire up the wheel and not have it saturating again. That we've tried a lot of techniques, and that seems to be working pretty well. Bonus tech content for you, and I've always loved the fact that uh, uh, our solar sails also controlled in part by the Earth's magnetic field. It's just thrilling stuff, folks. Um, well, it's not like thank- it's like this magnetic field is sentient or anything. I mean, we're we're telling the, we're <laughs> telling you know? we have software that the, on the spacecraft with the attitude control and determination software that tells it what to do uh, and uses the mag- Earth's magnetic field. We don't we don't hurt it though. Just a little bit. <laughs> you want to learn more? It's all there at uh, planetary.org uh, slash lightsail or sail.planetary.org. Thank you, the three of you, leaders of this project, leaders of uh, everything we do at the Planetary Society, for uh, coming on to help celebrate this third anniversary of Sailing on the Light of the Sun. Thank you, Matt. Go Light Sail! Go Light Sail. Go Light Sail. Is third anniversary gifts or mylar? <laughs> Silverized mylar, yeah. Traditional, yes. <laughs> Wow, lots of stuff on today's show, lots of people to hear from. And now we turn, as we always do, to the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts, Dr. B, as uh, as Bill, uh, you heard, likes to call him, who has just, is this right, just returned from Madagascar. I I did. I just returned from Madagascar is through the magic of radio and uh, podcast. We're recording this after the other one where I was hoping we'd get Madagascar. We did. We got Madagascar. Beautiful light sail too. Picture nice sail still still exists. It's always encouraging. Probably be released with a article that I'll be doing that'll come out probably this weekend tied to the anniversary June 25th so look for that on planetary.org it'll talk about the last year of light sail as well as having new pretty pictures including our friend Madagascar Madagascar island in the world I can I I can't see it but I feel like the lemurs are smiling (laughs) I'm sure they are and they're waving too with their feet and their hands (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what else is up? (laughs) Nothing else matters, Matt. Back to Madagascar. No, no. I'm still excited for the world of pre-dawn people because the planets, they're still in a beautiful line in the pre-dawn east going in order from the sun even with Mercury, the lowest down in the east, bright Mercury, followed by Venus, of course, super bright Venus, and then uh, 
If you look down, you can see the Earth. And then if you look up, again, you can see reddish Mars and uh, yellowish Saturn. And, and special guest appearance from the moon. The moon crossing through this group, uh, it'll finish its party with the planets uh, with Mercury on the 28th. So that is the, the highlight of the sky. It doesn't happen very often. Uh, cool. Check it out if you're conscious. Move on to this week in space history. There's kind of a theme to, to today's show, I think. 2019, Matt. Lightsail 2 launched. Uh-huh. That's oh, it. that's it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that'll do. <laughs> it was kind of a slow week in space history besides that. There certainly were, were, were interesting things that happened, but the only truly breakthrough revolutionary cheese-laden version <laughs> of goodness was uh, Light Sail 2's launch. I don't know. There was other good stuff, but that's what I got for you. I'm sorry. So this is why we told Elon, you are go for June 25th. <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> we didn't have a delay of multiple years where we never were sure when we were going to launch. No, nope, no, nope, we just said go for June 25th. Let us move on to Random Space Oh, that was unique. <laughs> I try. It's hard. Okay, so LightSail 2. I don't know if you've heard of it. CubeSat, solar sails, spacecraft demonstrated. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, as of the third anniversary of its launch on June 25th, 2022, LightSail 2 has traveled the Earth in Earth orbit more than 700 million kilometers, wow. more than 400 million miles during approximately 16,000 orbits. That's great. Oh, man, I love our little CubeSat. The little solar sail, it just kept on going. Yeah. Excellent. Um, we have some fun stuff for the contest today. Some great Oh, excellent. Stuff. I asked the very professional question, what unofficial but common name for a type of feature on Venus sounds like it would be delicious for breakfast? How do we do, Matt? It wasn't a huge response, but the stuff we got was choice. It was quality over quantity this time because there were such fun responses. And I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go through some of those. Here is, I think, the answer from the Poet Laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas. If you want a breakfast that is cooked up nice and hot, Venus is the planet that would hit the very spot. <laughs> Vulcanism made the place so very harem scarum. You might not have the time to eat your pancake-looking farum. Wow, I wondered where we were going with harem scarum. <laughs> yes, the the official name is uh, farum, uh, Latin for uh, pancake-looking item. No, <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> the plural being farra, ah. but, but we call them pancake domes because they look like you'll never guess it, pancakes. They really, really do. I mean, uh, this is a couple of people sent images, and uh, man, that's I've made me hungry. <laughs> the great thing is they're already hot. <laughs> well, that was noted by our winner, Chris Bailey in Texas. Longtime entrant. He's been listening for years, entering on and off for nearly three years. Chris, you have won. Uh, pancake domes, he says, and he adds, I'll take the pancakes, but... Please hold the sulfuric acid. Oh, man, that's what, so it's what they use instead of maple syrup. It doesn't come in one of those little uh, pitchers uh, at the IHOP, I, I don't think. <laughs> not without a warning label. Uh, Chris, you've won yourself a Planetary Society kick asteroid 
rubber asteroid. Uh, so congratulations uh, on that. And here's more. Kent Murley in Washington. Hopefully guests from Mars will supply some hematite blueberries. Ooh, tasty. Nathan Hunter. A whole bunch of great people in Washington this time. Nathan, who's also in Washington. Uh, he says, other options I considered. Canali, as it sounds like cannoli. Mm. Mead Crater, if we're adopting a Viking diet. And arachnoids, <laughs> if we're deciding to set aside our human biases. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I had really boring tastes. I just, um, you know, like pancakes. Alexandra Hebda in Georgia. Among the less appetizing features that might have been chosen, undye, dorsa, and here's my favorite, fluctus. (laughs) (laughs) Ew. I don't think I want to know. Edwin King in the UK, not sharing the US sweet tooth. I'd prefer some mushroom rocks. I think they've seen some from the rovers on Mars. Uh, maybe we'll we'll find some fungus for you out there. Here's the closer from Gene Lewin, also in the state of Washington. At any roadside diner, you can get them by the stack with a pat of butter, a cup of joe to wash them back. Add some maple syrup. Your waistline, it may grow. Pancake domes will fill the void. Please leave a tip for flow. <laughs> kiss my grit yeah oh gosh oh it's so good to do this show with somebody who goes back that far like i do uh, <laughs> i look it up folks. it is fun it's kind of depressing but it's fun uh i should mention i feel like i should mention some actual science here these are like very large volcanic flows where we think the uh, lava comes out and it's very viscous and comes out in one place. And that really strong pressure from the Venus atmosphere combined with the hot temperatures keeping it flowing, it flows out kind of evenly like pouring pancake batter and watching it spread out into a roughly circular shape. It is made of rock, though. Do not eat. Uh, Sorry, our lawyers make me say that. I think we're ready for a new one and a really cool prize, something never offered before. Wow. What is it, Matt? I'll get to it. Oh, I can hardly wait. All right. Here's your question. I was so excited. I, I, I forgot I asked a question. I've got one. You'll be shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Got to be something electrical. How many torque rods, <laughs> also known as magneto torquers, does LightSail 2 have? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. So I was right. It's electromagnetic. You have until the 29th. That would be Wednesday, June 29 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to enter this one. Shouldn't be too hard to find, everybody. So uh, planetary.org. And that prize, I'm going to hold it up for you to see. That is one of the coolest things I've ever seen, man. (laughs) Not that I'm totally biased, so you can ignore what I say. Here's the book, Solar System Reference for Teens, by Bruce Betts, PhD, a fascinating guide to our planets, moons, space programs, and more. I have read it. It is a great read. Uh, first, I had the uh, the ebook version, which was fine, but the physical version is is really more fun in it. The illustrations are great. You did a great job with this. So this is Bruce's uh, newest. Everybody, thanks for uh, providing it as a prize. Sure, my pleasure. And uh, just a note that I, I feel many of us are still teens at heart. Anyway, enjoy. 
No, I, I see what you're getting at there, and you're absolutely right. This is really a book for everybody. I mean, the earlier books for the little ones were pretty uh, and had great stuff and were fun. But this one, this one, and I don't think there are any adults out there who are going to feel that this is beneath them. So uh, go for it. It's a solar system reference for teens from uh, Rock Ridge Press, and it's available in all the usual places now, right? Uh, it is indeed, uh, certainly online, and a lot of the big stores carry it. At least uh, that's what I've heard. It just went on sale today, the day we were recording this, in celebration of Happy Solstice, Matt. Happy Solstice. I forgot about that. Happy Solstice to you, Bruce. Happy June Solstice. And uh, goodbye. All right, everybody. Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what you want to put on your Venusian pancake domes. <laughs> Do not eat. Thank you, and good night. I finally found a really good sugar-free fake maple syrup that uh, is what I would put on those pancake domes. It'd be kind of fun to see what happens with them at 800 degrees uh, centigrade. <laughs> anyway, uh, he's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its silver-winged members. Sail with us at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astro. Ad Astro.